Anyone tell me where that is? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's Anfield. It's Anfield. Don't worry, this is not a football illustration. Um, just in case you're a city supporter, biting your fingernails this morning. Or like me, a Stockport County supporter. They got promoted yesterday. Amazing news. No, this is not about football. This is about Billy Graham. 1984, Mission England. I was there. Just. I was quite little. I was there with my mum and my dad and my grandma and my granddad. And this is the point in that evening when the appeal happened. And you can see Billy Graham is there. He's been preaching and he asks, who will commit themselves to Jesus Christ? Who wants to be born again by the Holy Spirit? Look at all those people going down to the front. Just those swarms of people who went down and gave their life to Jesus on that evening. Now, Billy Graham died last year. I can't remember how old he was. He was well into his 90s, I think. And he'd served faithfully throughout his whole life. And he's been noted as being the most successful evangelist in the whole history of the church. The person who more than anybody brought millions of people to faith in Jesus Christ. Why was he so successful? Here's a question for you. Why was he so successful? Now, we'd have to give a very complex answer. A lot of it is probably to do with his anointing from the Holy Spirit, his sense of calling to be an evangelist for the gospel, But people now have started analysing what he's been doing and writing about him and saying, well, what kinds of things did he do that seemed to mean that he was so successful? One thing, he was very straightforward. He always preached the gospel. You know, if you went to hear Billy Graham, you knew what was coming. You weren't going to get some technical exposition of Exodus. You were going to get the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But also, underpinning everything he did was a very authentic Christian way of living. I came across this quote by Gavin Calver. He said, journalists would often try and dig up scandals about Billy Graham, but they never succeeded because there was nothing to find. When it came to holiness and living the life worthy of his preaching, Billy Graham was an incredible example. What he preached, what he lived, were the same kind of thing. It's 35 years ago since I was in Anfield. I haven't been back since for any reason. And... um, Over those 35 years, the church in this country, I think generally, has had quite a difficult time. This is church attendance in England from 1980 to 2015. I don't know if you can read it that clearly, but that is the the Baptist line trundling down there. But you can see, and this only goes to 2015, that trajectory down, there are about half the number of people now going to church in this country, having some kind of meaningful relationship with a Christian community than there were in 1980. We are no longer in a position where people have a sort of backdrop Christian understanding. We're no longer in a situation in this nation that we were, say, 35 years ago, where a preacher could stand up in a public place and call people to faith in Jesus because people don't know who Jesus is. There is that eroding of understanding of basic Christian teachings. There's a historian called Rodney Stark, and he tells us that actually now, the level of Christian commitment in the UK is similar to what it was in the Roman Empire in the mid-200s AD. In the mid-200s AD, the church was being persecuted, Christians were going into amphitheatres and being fed to the lions because of faith in Jesus. 
yet the church was committed, it was strong. Why? Because it was authentically living out the gospel in spite of what was happening. In spite of what was happening. Taking very great care to look at how Jesus says we should live. So over three Sundays, this week and then in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to be looking at three of the one another phrases of the New Testament. Anyone have a guess how many one another phrases there are in the New Testament? Eighty-three. A little, a little high, but not too high. Fifty-nine. Fifty-nine, you were close. Fifty-nine one another phrases. Phrases that encourage us how to be with one another. Jesus, Paul, John, Peter, instructing the churches, this is what the gospel means to be lived out. You see, I think we're in a society now that will listen to what we say when they see how we live. And those things go in hand in hand. People don't know enough about Jesus to take our word for it. They need to see that we are living it out. And if we are not a church, if we're not a Christian community that is defined by these radical instructions of the Bible then Paul will say, we end up being a clanging bell or a clashing cymbal. There is not a lot to what we have to do. If we are not a church that is is, um, defined by different priorities, then actually the good news we talk about is undermined by the hypocrisy in our lives. So if you've got a Bible in front of you, do you want to turn to the book of Romans? And we're in chapter 15, and we're reading verses 1 through to verses 7. It's page 1077, if you've got a church Bible in front of you. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. We should all please our neighbours for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Let's pray. Lord, our aim is to bring you praise and glory. And we just pray that as we open your word, as we explore what these words mean, that that will be the result, that we will become that community of growing depth of worship and proclamation of the gospel. We ask it for your sake. Amen. A few months back, I was on a tram going into Manchester, and four girls got on the tram at one stop. And they were probably sort of mid-late teens, that, that sort of age, and they were loud, and I mean they were loud, really loud, I was probably sat about eight rows from them, and yet I could hear their conversation very, very clearly. Um, They were also really quite coarse in their language. I won't tell you the words they were using. I also, I'm not able to tell you what they were talking about because it was really, really rude. And there were people watching them. I don't know if you ever noticed this on public transport, but people do various things. 
People sit there like this, and they just gaze into space. No matter what is going on around them, have you noticed that? Particularly happens if you're in London on the tube. You know, anything could happen, and they're there like that, just staring blankly. Or they're staring at their phone, doing exactly the same thing, but not taking any notice. And then there's people being very British in their disapproval. So they sit there, still with that sort of stony face on them, but every now and again they do this, and tut (laughs) quietly under their breath. But never loud enough so that if anyone noticed they were doing it, they couldn't immediately revert to the fiercing stare that goes forward. So it's interesting. There's an interesting dynamic on this tram at that point. We're carrying on, and a couple of stops down the line, a really elderly lady got on the tram, who obviously had some quite um, severe sort of mobility issues. By this point, the tram was full. Who got up and offered this lady a seat? Not me. I was... <laughs> you got me on that one. I was quite a distance away, in my defense, in my defense. The person who got up was the loudest of these four girls. She got up straight away, offered her seat, and then proceeded to have a very loud conversation with this woman, but a very pleasant conversation. She made this woman feel welcome, accepted, and just valued as a human being. And it was a huge wake-up call for me. I love illustrations from real life. When suddenly something breaks into your experience that says how easy it is to judge people based on outward markers. How easy it is to look at somebody and to pigeonhole them and think that this person is like this when actually the heart of that girl was the heart of somebody who wanted to give and would make way for other people. You know, we do it in everyday life, don't we? We all do it, whether we like to admit it or not. We look at people, we judge, we put them in boxes. The sad thing is, we often do it with other Christians as well. We look at one another, we see how we behave, we see the things we do, and we put one another in boxes. Our human markers of what makes us acceptable or not acceptable. Part of our vision for our church here, is that we become an increasingly welcoming place. That we change our building to more and more welcome people into here. But on what basis do we welcome? How do we welcome? How do we accept? Is it on behaviour? Is it on belief? Or is it on something else? Well, I want to work through this passage in a slightly illogical way, so I hope you'll excuse me this morning. We're going to start at the bottom Look at verse 7, then go back up to the top and look at the next bit. Hopefully it'll become clear why I'm doing that in a moment. The first thing we find, and even I'm going to look at verse 7 in reverse as well, so again, just excuse me. We're going to look at the the last bit where it says, just as Christ accepted you. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. We've already touched on this this morning, but how do we get accepted by God? This word accept um, that's in Romans, just to to give it a bit more sort of depth to it, if we use the word accept in English, it's a bit of a neutral word, isn't it? It's not a sort of gushing, lavish, loving word. If I say to Claire this morning, you know, Claire, I accept you, it's it's not a word that I would be sort of thinking, you know, it's not lavish, is it? It's not got that depth of meaning. Whereas welcome in the Greek, accept, means welcome, accept, and receive all in one go. It's quite a lavish sort of word. If you know the story of the the prodigal son, the the story that Jesus told, Jesus told this story of a man 
and he has two sons. And the younger son goes to his father and says, Dad, I want half the the inheritance. I want the money that I will get when you are dead. And I want to go away and I want to spend it now. And the story that Jesus tells is that this son then goes off and he wastes all this money. He spends it on wild living, he spends it on prostitutes, and he gets to a point where the money has run out. You know, money does that, doesn't it? If we're not earning it and just spending it, eventually it will run out. The money runs out. And he finds himself in the worst possible situation. He's there feeding pigs. And he's starving. And he sits there and he thinks, why don't I go back to my dad and work as a slave? Why don't I go back and do the kinds of jobs that other people are doing just so that I know I'm safe and so that I know I'm being fed. And yet as the story unfolds, what we find is when the younger son comes back, he's not just sort of begrudgingly accepted, but he's lavishingly welcomed. I'm just going to read this from Luke chapter 15. It's from verse 20, just through to verse 24. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. What we find in that story of Jesus is that the father, who represents God in that story, he welcomes lavishly those who return to him. He welcomes people, not based on their merits, but based on grace and mercy that is rooted in love. When we turn to God, how does God welcome us? Well, it's through the work of Christ. It's through the cross. I don't know where those goggles have gone. But it's through the cross that Jesus, that we are seen by God, through the work of Jesus, through what Jesus has done for us. It's not through our own merit. It's not through the things that we think we can do. And I always think that should be enough to give us, when we're feeling weak, the confidence to know that we are accepted because of Christ. But also, perhaps, if we're feeling strong, to keep us humble because we know there is nothing to do with our behavior that God will accept us for. It's all rooted in Christ. We are welcomed by Christ, not through merit or status. You know, at the point of welcome, we may be in a total mess. We may have totally messed our lives up. We may mess up again. But the moment we turn to God through Christ, we find the lavishness of that acceptance and welcome. I don't know about you, but sometimes I think that can be quite hard to accept because we still like our human markers of acceptance. We still like to think that actually if we just do things, if we look a bit more spiritual or have a longer, quieter time, then God will somehow love us more. That isn't true. We're welcomed on the basis of what Christ has done, not on what we do. He will never love us more. He will never love us less. Then the call goes out. To accept, or I put it as here, as welcome one another. See, it's very easy, I think, in some ways, to think, oh, great, you know, Jesus welcomes me regardless of who I am, of what I've done. He welcomes me according to his work on the cross, and it's all about grace and mercy. But then to put other stipulations onto other people. 
And Paul found that he had to deal with this quite a lot in some of the New Testament letters. In Galatians, um, where Paul is writing to the church in Galatia, he had to deal with a group of people called Judaizers who said, if you want to be really accepted as part of this community, then you have to become a Jew first. If this was a man, you had to go and get circumcised. If you were a man and a woman, you had to follow the law. In Corinthians, there were those who felt you needed special knowledge to be fully accepted as a Christian. And it all became human markers. These are the things that we put to say that actually, if you want to be really welcomed into this community, you need to do X, Y, and Z. Not just based on the cross, it's based on something more. And sadly, this continues to happen throughout churches and Christian communities right up to this present day. I was once in a a church in the summer, and I wasn't preaching or leading. I had no role to play in this church other than just visiting. And it was a scorching hot day. So just like Nick, who is sat before me this morning, I hope you don't mind me using you as an illustration, I came to church in shorts. And I had shorts on and a short sleeve shirt on. I hadn't realized that this was a taboo in this church. So as I went into the church, I had people doing (laughs) these kind of things. I had people looking me up and down. I had people not really saying things, but obviously thinking that I was unacceptable because the bottom part of my legs were showing. It's interesting, isn't it? How we put these things, these walls up, that say, to be acceptable, you must do X, Y, and Z. You know, I think sometimes as Christians, we're far better at building walls around ourselves than we are at creating doorways to allow people to receive the grace and the mercy of Jesus. I've been reading this book um, over the last few weeks, and I've, I've just finished it. It's called A Nearly Infallible History of the Reformation. Um, those uh, men in the church, remember Nick Page? Um, it's not as heavy going as it looks. It looks quite a deep, deep book. It's very big print. Uh, lots of pictures in it as well. But it's a history of the Reformation, but it's done in a slightly humorous way. Um, if you're into sort of Calvinism, it says at the front, you were predestined to read this by John Calvin. So it's, that's the kind of nature of the book. But in this book, it gives a warts and all sort of history of the Reformation. And it talks about how at some points in church history, People would fall out amongst, you know, in an incredible way about the most minute details of second or third rate Christian issues. So people got burnt at the stake because they disagreed with the way communion prayers were said. People would be ostracized from a city because they disagreed with the way somebody had been baptized. And I'm sort of reading this book thinking, well, what on earth would Paul have made of what was going on at that particular point in Christian history. You know, I think he would have been absolutely beside himself. What on earth do you think you're doing? I don't want to put words into the Apostle Paul's mouth, but read the book of Galatians and see how cross he gets with the Judaizers, and I think you'll get that kind of idea. You see, the mark of a church is a place where all disciples of Jesus are mutually welcomed by each other on the basis of what Christ has done not on those human markers, not on those extra conditions of welcome. Just think, if we welcome one another, if we accept one another, if we receive one another on that basis, what changes? 
Well, in my life, I think it would stop me from being quick to judge. It would make me readier to forgive. Much more gracious if somebody else fails. Much more eager to see one another get back on track with Jesus. Now, it can be easy to model this. It can be easy to think, well, accepting one another means going soft on sin. I've not been prepared to challenge one another when things are going wrong in our lives. And that, that is not the case at all. You know, discipleship is all about being prepared to ask the hard questions of one another. But what it means is that we accept one another solely on faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the playing field. That is the level playing field of Calvary. It's about our intrinsic worth because Christ has died for us. The song um, that we we sometimes sing, which is a song that I always think resonates quite deeply with me, "My, My Worth is Not in What I Own. There's a line in that song that talks about my worth and my unworthiness. You know, our worth, as Christians today, is demonstrated by the cross. Our unworthiness is demonstrated by everything that we get up to. Our worth is demonstrated through who Jesus is. Our unworthiness is demonstrated by the fact that we can't reach God by ourselves. And those two things, hand in hand. So if we flip back up now to the the start of the passage, we'll see that the rest of the passage um, sort of starts to, to unpack what these kind of things are. The strong bearing with the weak. There are some times in my own life when, in my own sort of Christian journey, I do feel quite strong. I don't know if you experienced that, if you're a disciple of Jesus this morning. When I read the Bible and it seems to really sort of speak to me, when I'm praying and I see prayers answered, when I feel like I have quite a lot of resilience in life and I feel that um, generally, you know, spiritual things are good. You know, I'm prepping a sermon and it, it feels like I'm getting nourished through the whole process. But then the flip side is, there are times in my own life when I feel absolutely hopelessly weak. When I feel like I'm praying, and it's like there is a ceiling, and prayers are just not sort of getting there somehow. When I'm reading the Bible, and it just doesn't seem to to resonate in perhaps the way it did a few weeks previously. When it feels like stuff is just piling up around, and I've got no answers to some of the questions. In those times, I often feel that, you know, Thank God that he uses us in our weaknesses. And it's often in those times that God uses us the most. Now hopefully it doesn't come as a surprise. But those of us in Christian ministry face exactly the same struggles of being weak and strong that all of us do. You know, all of us have time when we get ill, when we get run down, when our spiritual reserves get to a low point, perhaps where we have times of doubt, And so what I think Paul is talking about when he talks about strong and weak is not categories of human merit. It's not that over here sit the strong Christians with all the answers and everything sorted out. And over here are the weak ones who don't really know what's going on. And the strong sit here sort of bearing down on the weak and trying to sort of patronize them. It's nothing to do with that at all. These are not categories of merit. Both of us, both of these categories are places that all of us I think we'll find ourselves in at one point or another in our Christian journey. And I think Paul's point here is this. If I'm in a strong place today, if I feel I've got that spiritual resilience, if I feel that I'm, I'm in a place where I can help others, get on and do it. You know, encourage one another. Strengthen people round about you who perhaps are struggling. 
However, at other times, if I'm in that place of feeling weak, don't just live with it, don't just sit there, but actually have the, the, the sort of the wherewithal to go and share that with somebody and allow somebody else to encourage you. Allow somebody else to, to strengthen and to develop your own faith. You know, it appears that in the church in Rome, there were those who were feeling spiritually strong, and they were just using it as a platform for patronizing other people. This is not what this is about. This is about this mutuality, this one another support. Verse 4. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. I think what Paul is getting at here is that the purpose of accepting and bearing with each other is that we grow in endurance in faith. We grow in endurance. This word endurance, or we could use another word, sort of resilience, is, a, is an interesting word, because it's a word that suggests sort of developing an inner strength. Anyone here ever run a marathon? Did you find it easy? No. Anyone find it easy? Arthur, did you find it easy? The first few miles. The first few miles. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've never run a marathon. I occasionally run to the shops or something like that, but that, that's about the extent of my running. Um, but I know if I'm going on a really long walk, which I do a lot more of, there is a sense that you just have to keep going, don't you? You have to keep going. And endurance is the ability to actually get to the end, having kept going all the way through. If we want to endure as a Christian, if we want to, to get to the end, and Paul will say about you know, running the race and getting to the end and knowing that we, we've run it well, it's about developing this spiritual endurance, about knowing who we are in Christ. You know, a resilient Christian, an enduring Christian, is not a superhuman or a spiritual hero, but a person who simply refuses to let go of the hope that we have in Jesus. And a person who will look to others when they're weak, and will be there for others when they're strong. Is that us? Are we living as community like that? And then we get to verse 5, and we come full circle with Paul praying for the church to have the same attitude that Christ has to each other. Now, all this is really important, isn't it? To be able to welcome one another on the basis of who we are in Christ. To be able to accept one another because we are all the same, sinners saved by grace, sinners in need of a saviour, all mercifully bought through what Jesus has done at Calvary. But you know, this is just a starting point, isn't it? This is just a starting point, because we are also called to be missional. The church is called to evangelise the world. We are called to pick up where the generations before have left off and keep proclaiming the gospel. You know, the church is never meant to be a sanctuary for the saved. It's never meant to be a repose for the righteous or any other fancy alliterations you can think of. My imagination ran out at that point. We are meant to be the place where people can explore, where people can come in and feel accepted, where people can come and ask those difficult questions, where people will find that there is an unreserved welcome. You know, if we can't welcome one another, how do we ever think we're going to welcome prodigals who are returning? If we can't welcome other Christians and accept one another, how are we going to extend that outwards to reach into our communities in the way that Jesus did? 
If you look at the ministry of Jesus, I don't know if you've ever noticed, it's quite messy and earthy. Jesus didn't just deal with nice people. He dealt with people whose lives were in an absolute mess. The woman at the well, you know, somebody whose relationships are all over the place, who's more or less been ostracized by the community. Zacchaeus, I can't imagine Zacchaeus was a very nice man, really. Not before he became to know Jesus, anyway. He was defrauding people, left, right, and center. And yet, he welcomed Jesus, and Jesus welcomed him. Paul, before Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was persecuting Christians and watching them being murdered for their faith. You see, right the way through the ministry of Jesus, we see him welcome the doubters, the prostitutes, those who've been abused. Life gets messy when we do things the way that Jesus calls us to do it. The story of the prodigal is that the welcome, the welcome of the father happens before there is any challenge at all of the behavior of the returning prodigal. I don't know if you've ever noticed that in that story. The welcome, the lavishness of the welcome, happens before he goes and has a shower, before he stops smelling of whatever pigs smell of, and it all happens before that. The welcome happens at that point. You know, God doesn't want to leave us floundering in sin, and once we are welcomed as a prodigal, then there are things that God will, will encourage us to do and challenge us as we become disciples. But I just want us to think this morning... Are we a community ready to welcome prodigals? Are we ready to welcome people? We started this morning thinking about how we share the good news, about thinking about the the culture we live in, thinking about how it has shifted since Billy Graham was preaching in the 80s. And it's into this world that we are called to share the gospel. The same gospel, that never changes. But the way we do it does have to change as the culture around us shifts. Now, it's essential that we still preach the gospel, absolutely essential. But I believe it is equally essential that people see it lived out in our communities. That people see that we are not hypocrites. That they see that the gospel that we preach resonates deep within our lives. You know, our building that we're sat in this morning will change over the next few months. There'll be that welcoming area in Ridgeway where we can welcome people for a drink and those kind of things. Um, Things will happen in here. We will have chairs that are easier to move around, that are hopefully a little bit comfier, and the sound will be clearer, and lots of nice things will happen. But you know, if we do that, and then become precious about the building and stop welcoming people, let's not bother. You know, if we do that, and then can't welcome in the returning prodigals, we're wasting our time. This needs to be all for what we've been called to do in sharing the gospel. Let's just be reminded again of the welcome of God through the work of his son, Jesus Christ, who has called us to be adopted heirs, his sons, his daughters, his forgiven people. Let's welcome one another on that basis and then welcome the communities around us to join in with that welcome we have received. Just want to think of three things in closing. First thing, do I know the extent of Christ's acceptance or welcome of myself? Do we know that? Does that resonate with you this morning? Do I accept other Christians in the same way? Or do I have my other human markers that I want to put around it? Am I, and this is individual, 
prepared to welcome returning prodigals. I'm just going to leave those up for a moment. If the, the music team could, could come back up, they're going to lead us in a moment in a couple of songs to finish. But let's just spend a moment just reflecting on those things, and then we'll, we'll pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning that we are welcomed because of what you did on Calvary, because you took our sin, because you defeated it, because death is defeated. We remembered last week that you rose again in glory. We thank you that that is the basis on which we are welcomed and on which we are called to welcome one another. We just pray for us as a, as a church here this morning. We pray that we will be a church known for living out an authentic Christian, gospel-centered way of being. And that through that, through the words that we say, that we will be able to welcome those who are returning to you. Thank you, Lord, for the lavishness of your welcome. Thank you, Lord, for your presence.